Um, one of the things that I want to do this morning, and it's going to play into where we're going in the book of James, but um, everybody's been coming up and asking me, what are we going to do about the election? What are we going to do about the election? It's over and over and over. And let me just say, and I'm going to do the best I can to answer the question about all this election stuff and what are we going to do on Tuesday. Let me, first of all, start by saying this. No matter what happens on Tuesday, God is still God, Jesus is still Lord, and the Holy Spirit is still powerful. Okay? So that means if you don't get your way in the voting, um, God didn't all of a sudden go, oh man, I missed that one. (laughs) My bad on that one. I don't know what I was thinking. The other thing is to think through is this. In the Bible, it never says, thou shalt vote. It never says, thou shalt not vote. In other words, it's what in the Bible is called a gray area. When we come to a gray area, it means that we have to now take Scripture and we have to decide then what are we going to do in order to honor Christ most. Now, one of the passages I think that, uh, that deals with it the best is 1 Corinthians. You can go there. I'm just going to read a couple passages just to help you kind of as you decide what you're going to do on Tuesday. The thing about voting in our culture is it's a privilege. It's not a right. If, uh, and a lot of times you'll hear on the TV it's a right. No, it's not a right. My mom, who's been in elections for years, she sits on the, this huge uh, group as the chairman of it for the United States that oversees all elections. And the one thing I've learned is that it's not a right. In other words, if I'm 17, guess what I don't get to do? I don't get to vote. If I get a criminal record, a felony, guess what? I don't get to vote. It's a privilege. So that means, in other words, I have to view it as such. It's a privilege for me that I can either choose to do or not to do. In 1 Corinthians 10.23, it says, look, all things are permissible. In other words, it's, it's, if you want to take advantage of the, of the privilege, it's up to you. But then he says, not all things are profitable. All things are lawful or permissible, but not all things edify. Now, here's the thing. Here's the first thing. When you enter into vote, one of the first things you have to understand, verse 24, let no one seek his own good but that of his neighbor. If you choose to vote, it's not about you. I think John F. Kennedy hit it kind of on the head when he said, ask not what you can do for your country. Did I say that wrong? Ask not what your country can do for you. There we go. But what you can do for your country. See, it's not about us. Everything I hear, I just every time this year I kind of start watching TV just to see what's going on out there. It is the most debauched conversation of selfishness that I've ever heard when I sit and watch CNN or Fox News or whatever. And I don't care Democrat or Republican. It is the grossest evidence of mankind sometimes on TV when we start talking about this stuff. It's not about me. It's about my neighbor. Go with me to chapter 9. Look at verse 19. For though I am free from all men, I have made myself a slave to all people, that I might win them. To the Jews I became a Jew, though I am not under the law. To the Gentile, he says, the one without the law. Now look at verse 22. To the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, whether Republican or Democrat or Independent, that I might by all means save some. And I do all things for the sake of the gospel that I may become a fellow partaker of it. When you go in to vote, the first thing is it's about your neighbor, but the second thing is it's about the gospel. It's not about whether, you know what, I could care less about your taxes and my taxes. Uh, render unto Caesar what Caesar's, but no more. Only what he's asked. But if he needs to raise our taxes, raise them. Now, some of you are out there freaking out. No, I don't trust the government because I know they're sinful. Um, I don't trust Republicans or Democrats. I don't trust anybody. I trust God. Um, 
And so, yes, you know, it's, on this whole issue, the thing you've got to understand is it's not about you and it's about the gospel. Go to chapter 10 again. Look at verse 31. The most important aspect of this. Whether then you eat or you drink or whatever you do, including voting, you do all to the glory of God. When you enter into that booth, if you choose to vote this weekend, your job, or this week, your job is to enter into that booth thinking, God, how do I glorify you most? And what it is, is people always come up to me and say, hey, are you going to hand out like the voting guides? No, we're not. Um, I'm not against them. I'm not for them. I believe the best thing I can do is teach you this book and then say, now go vote biblical. Go vote God in there. Now, a lot of times people say, well, what do you mean by biblical? 1 Corinthians 10.31. Everything you do, whatever you decide to write down, needs to glorify God, first and foremost. Secondly, though, there seems to be a very big deal in the Bible put on protecting the weak. Protecting those that can't protect themselves. God is adamant about that. If you ever read the prophets, the one area he gets very mad about is when those that are strong don't take care of those that are weak. And in James 1.27, which we're going to get to next week, He deals with this reality that, hey, watch out for the widows and the orphan. Why? Because they can't take care of themselves. You need to watch out for them. In Malachi 3.5, it's pretty interesting. In fact, God is so mad at the Israelites because they didn't take care of those who couldn't take care of themselves. He was viciously mad at them. In fact, he puts probably more condemnation out of the prophets on people that don't take care of the weak, even as opposed to like things like adultery and sorcery. And he is always on them about taking care of those that can't take care of themselves. Now, I'm not saying it's our job to become a taking care of people that don't want to work, okay? I think the Bible's pretty clear. If you don't work, you don't eat. But I think this applies to the issues of children. Um, I didn't choose the family I was born into. I was born with a silver spoon in my mouth. I'll be honest with you. I did not choose that. I was born into privilege. Did I deserve it? No. Did I get it? Yeah, it was a wonderful privilege. We need to take care of not only the born children, but the unborn children. I need to watch out for them because do they have a choice what's going to happen to them inside of the womb? No. But I also need to watch out for the elderly. I need to watch out for the oppressed. I need to watch out for those that are downtrodden. In other words, it's bigger than that. Generally, Christians come across as one-issue people. We generally tend to vote along the lines of abortion and abortion alone. It's bigger than that. It's way bigger than just whether or not somebody is killing an infant or not. It also has to do with the bigger picture of of what's going on. So as you go in there, I think this is what the Bible teaches. And so, in other words, if you think you can honor Christ most and care for those that can't care for themselves the most by not voting, well, then don't vote. Literally. If that's how you think you can honor Christ most and help the weak the most... Then, then don't vote. But if you think you can honor Christ most and you can help the weak the most by entering into there to vote, well then, go vote. Vote your conscience. Vote what God has, has told you to do. But the thing to learn about elections is this. This is the thing that just my... my uh, both my parents have been very political. And uh, the one thing elections have taught me is not who wins or who loses. Is there a snapshot of our culture? They tell us the reality of what's going on. It's kind of like, you know when you go to the doctor and you don't want to tell him to tell you you have something wrong with you? You'd rather just kind of stay in ignorance? Every two years, we get a snapshot of what our country values. It's this thing in which now we as the church can look in, we get an x-ray of our country, and guess what? Where our country is, do you know who God is going to hold responsible for it? Us. Our country is where it's at because the church is either doing its job or not doing its job. 
So in other words, if you don't like what happens, please don't point at them and say, oh, you know, those stupid idiots, they don't, they're not smart. If they would have voted like me, everybody would be happy. No, point the finger right here. See, the church's job is to affect the culture. Do you realize if we led everybody to Jesus Christ, we probably wouldn't even need government? Why do I think that? Well, I know that the democratic form of government is not the best form of government. Now, how do I know that? I know that Jesus Christ is going to return and be a monarch. He's going to rule with an iron fist. Meaning that is the best form of government is when Jesus Christ is ruling. Now, in the meantime, is the democratic process good? Sure, love it. Um, but I've also learned that the Apostle Paul lived in a country that wasn't democratic like ours. I've learned people through the ages. So, in other words, no matter what happens... Here's the deal. All authority on heaven and earth has been given to Jesus Christ. Therefore, my job is not to go, oh God, you missed up. Oh, you messed up. Proposition whatever should have never passed. God, you fell off your throne. What are we going to (sighs) do? My gas prices are going to skyrocket, God. (sighs) You missed one, God. No. No. If anybody should be smiling Wednesday morning, it's us. Because if it goes really bad, that just means take us home. (laughs) Right? (laughs) Good God, you must be in a hurry. (laughs) Get us out of here. If it goes really well, then maybe we should actually, maybe we should frown, you know? I mean, it's like, well, all right, that means we stay here longer. But it's, don't forget, Jesus wins, all right? I mean, go vote. If if you're not going to vote, I'm not going to hold you accountable and... Uh, it's just, that's your opportunity to either glorify God or not glorify God. And so that's, that's something between you and the Lord. But the reason I bring all that up is this time of year absolutely confuses me about Christians because uh, it seems like election time we turn into Chicken Little. The sky is falling, the sky is falling, right? I mean, you watch the news and the Christians that represent us, somehow if we don't elect the right people, literally God is going to fall off his throne. And, and, and as I've looked through Scripture, and I think this is what James' point's going to be today, is that literally I don't have to worry about those things. That's not the issue. All these things, these external realities, and even Francis talked about it, these external stuff is not my issue. See, a lot of people will say, oh, if I just had a better government, oh, if I just had a better husband or wife, oh, if I just had better kids or parents, oh, if I just had a better job or employees, oh, if I just had this, somehow things would be better. Let me tell you something. Your major problem is not your spouse. Your major problem is not your employer or employees. Your major problem is not your kids or parents. Your major problem is not any of those things. You know what your major problem is? And my major problem? Me. I am my major problem. Big time. I know that. I mean, when my wife comes in and she says something, you know, that just drives me up the wall, I mean, that's between her and the Lord. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. You know what I'm saying? It's like, cool. I'm kidding. I'm going to get to that in here in a second. (laughs) But now the issue is now, how am I going to respond to that? How am I going to respond to these different things? That's what James is going to be talking about here this morning. My major problem is not my trials. My major problem is not my temptations. My major problem is right here. It's me. Let me say it once more, just in case anybody misses it. You are your major problem. When people come into me for counseling, it's so funny. A husband will look down and, and he'll come to me and say, you know what my biggest problem is? And he'll go like this. The woman that God gave me. And the wife then puts up a mirror and goes, you mean yourself? You know what I mean? It's just this thing where it's like, 
what you say is what you are, you know, you're a naked movie star. It's just this thing where we get caught up in this stupid world of thinking that the other person is my problem. No, it's not. I'm my major problem. And James is writing to a group of people that were probably living at the toughest time for Christians of all times. They were living in this world in which they were Jews, and when they left Judaism, they were looked down upon. In fact, the Jews rejected the Christians. They didn't like them. Not only that, but the Gentiles, the Greeks and the, and the Romans hated the Jews. So that means that the Romans thought that the, the Christians were Jews, and so then the Romans and the Greeks hated the Christians. That means, guess what? Nobody liked them. Nobody did. And they're in this world, and finally I can see them telling God, God, what in the world we choose to follow you? What's your problem, God? Why don't people like me? You know, I mean, it's just this thing that's going through their head. And one of the things that I've found is that when we get to that point, when we're so down and we're so beaten up, and we, we sit down and finally we go, why God? The first thing that comes is, go with me to James 1.19, which I think this is the issue that James is addressing. Actually, let's look at verse 20. Look what he says. The anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. You know this, don't you? That when you come home and your wife says something or your husband says something so stupid, what do you want to do? Oh. I mean, there was like about two weeks ago, my wife gave me a softball. And I was just like, oh. God, this one's going to be good. And I mean, I was just ready to tear my wife up with my tongue. I mean, it was just deep within my heart. That temptation was sitting there. And and last week, Francis talked about it. it was giving birth and it was growing inside of me. And I could have stopped it. But suddenly, what comes out of my mouth? Death. That's what Francis talked about last week. See, I responded incorrectly to my wife. It grew inside of me. My mind was going... See, the thing about people that speak is they learn how to speak well sometimes. Not only good things, but James is going to talk about in James 3, bad things. And I said something to my wife I never should have said. Death came out of my mouth. And it literally tore her to shreds. And James says, that's my point. You cannot let anger control you. Go to Ephesians 4. Ephesians 4. Verse 26. Should I have been angry if somebody does something that is against God? Verse 26, be angry. There you go. But watch how he says this. And yet, do not what? Sin. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. Do not give the devil an opportunity. Go with me to Genesis 4. Let me show you what I mean by giving the devil an opportunity. Genesis 4. Cain and Abel came to offer sacrifices and God accepted Abel's sacrifice and not Cain's. And look what God says to him in 4 verse 6. The Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? Why is your countenance fallen? If you do well, will not your countenance be lifted up? And if you do not do well, look at this. Sin is crouching at the door and its desire is to overcome you, to take you over. In other words, literally when something comes at us and anger's there, literally Satan's hanging around by the corner going, 
<laughs> the moment you come home and you want to fight, the moment that your husband says something stupid or the moment your husband leaves his socks on the floor, is sitting on the couch absorbing oxygen and wasting it for the rest of us, the moment that that happens and you want to explode, Satan is right around the corner going, I got him. Because he knows that the moment that that escalates, what happens? And it goes out of control. Go with me back to the New Testament again. Look at Romans 12. Romans 12. Verse 17. Now, if you're a highlighter, or if you're an underliner, or if you're a husband, or if you're a wife, or if you're a parent or a kid, if you breathe oxygen, there's two words I want you to see in 17 and 19. Never. All right? Underline them. Star them. Put bells and whistles around them. Never. Okay? Whenever a couple comes into my office and I say, good, today we're going to never say something wrong towards some other. Look at this. Never pay back evil for evil to anyone, including your wife or your husband or your kids or your parents. Respect what is right in the sight of all men, if possible, so far as it depends on you. And if you think it's you right now, actually that is you. Be at peace with all men. And here's our word again. Never take your own revenge. Oh, but my husband, you don't understand him. I'm not making him dinner for a week, that jerk. Oh, but my wife, I'm not going to talk to her. I'll show her. I'll keep my mouth shut. Look at this. Beloved, leave room for the wrath of God, but it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Can you imagine if all of a sudden my wife comes in and she wants to start a fight and I just look at her and go, baby, I love you and vengeance is mine, says the Lord. (laughs) Oh, I won't do that, but... uh... In other words, leave room for God. See, whenever people come into my office, they want to tattletale on their spouse. Yeah, but you know what he did? Uh, Dad. Uh. I mean, it's this thing which you don't know how rough I have it. I'm married to the sloth over here. He leaves his underwear on the floor and it's gross. He doesn't change for two weeks. I mean, it's just this thing in which we get this idea in our head that somehow I owe, am owed something more. Let me tell you something. This is what you're owed biblically. When the Bible talks about what we deserve, it says we deserve hell. That means if your spouse is anything this side of hell, you're lucky. Amen? See, everybody, I'll hear it all the time. I deserve better. No, you don't. (laughs) You deserve hell. And if your husband is anything this side of Satan, praise God. Now, that's an important thing to remember because as James comes into this, he's going to say something to us in verse 16. Go to James 1. He's going to say something very important. In verse 16, he says, Do not be deceived. Now, he's saying this because all through the book of chapter, all through chapter 1 in James, it's going to be, watch out, you could either deceive yourselves, somebody's trying to deceive you. Deceive is a very important word here because we are deceived all the time. See, sometimes like a pastor will stand up in front of you and hold a wallet and try to trade money with you, try to trade wallets. 
because they're evil. And then there's pastors that are just the good ones that just stand in front of you, just want you to know God is good, you know. I mean, and there's, that's the two differences. I'm just kidding. He says, don't be deceived. Don't think that your problem is anyone other than you. You are the problem. Don't point fingers. The next time you want to point fingers, just do this. <clears throat> Keep it there. It's beautiful. If you do that, good things happen. Your mouth shuts. Ever notice you can't fight when your mouth is shut? It's a beautiful thing. He says, don't be deceived. And then he comes in and look at verse 17. Why? Because every good giving and every perfect gift is from God. See, our tendency is to somehow think, I deserve more. And when I think I deserve more, what am I telling God? You owe me. God, you're not good. I'm owed something from you, God. Somehow in our thinking, when we think that, we are deceived beyond belief. Because the reason I had all those verses up on the screen, if you ever read the Bible, you know what the Bible says all the time? God is good, 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 God is good. You, evil, 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 me, evil, 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 God, good, good, good. That's the point of the Bible. God is good. And in fact, one of the greatest stories that tells the goodness of God and the evilness of man is in Genesis, the story of Joseph. His brother sell him into slavery. Potiphar, his wife, accuses him of something he didn't do. He gets put in prison. He stays there forever, even though the baker and the butler, he, they're supposed to help him get out of prison. Finally, Pharaoh elevates him to the second highest person, which I've always thought, if, if I got elevated to the second highest person in the then-known world, man, I would cause havoc. Vengeance is mine. I'd find Potiphar's wife and I would get all over her and my brothers who sold me into slavery. But it says Joseph didn't do that. And in the very end, Joseph learned something incredibly huge that I think is so good for us to learn. See, in Genesis 50, it says this. After, after, after he's dealt with his brothers and after he's dealt with these different things going on, in Genesis 50, it says, His brothers came and fell down before him as the second highest person in all the kingdom and said, Look, we're your servants. Now, I would have gone, Dang straight you are. Kiss my feet. I mean, I would, have just, I would have done whatever it could to humiliate him. Look what he says. But Joseph said to them, do not fear. For am I in the place of God? In other words, he's saying, is it my job to judge you? You're going to have to deal with God on that. As for you, you meant it for evil against me. He says, but God meant it for good. To bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. See, he got kept alive he, all these things happened, even the bad things to him, which God was not the author of that, because God had a plan. See, Joseph's family would have died had his brothers not sold him into slavery to get him down to Egypt. His whole family would have been wiped out, which means if his family dies, Jesus Christ never exists. I'm very glad his brothers were jerks, because I'm saved today because of his brothers being jerks. That's a good thing. Did God force them to be jerks? No. It grew inside of them. They hated their brother. They sold him into slavery. Was it God's fault? No. But you know the amazing thing? God causes all things to work together for good for those who are called according to his name, according to his purpose. That's the hope that we have as Christians. When people are being jerks, even when your spouse is being a jerk, learn to do this. Recite in your head, God causes all things to work together for good, even these things that this person is saying to me right now that I want to slap them back for. But God, it's good. It's good. He also says this, every good thing 
Meaning, every, it should be every good giving. Meaning, his, his act of giving it to you is good. Every perfect gift, the, the result of it, is from above because God is good. And he says, coming down from the Father of lights. This coming down idea, it's a, it's a present tense verb, which just means it just keeps coming. God never stops. He never, ever, ever stops giving good to, the, to people. It's in a constant flow of his goodness to everything. In other words, you didn't deserve for the sun to come up this morning. But God's good. You don't deserve to breathe oxygen, but God is good. You don't, believe, you don't deserve to be here right now, but God is good. And when it calls him the Father of Lights, it's, the most, it's a name that the Jewish people would give him because they would not say Yahweh, the name of God. But they would always call him a name that signified something very important about him. See, when the Jewish people ever wanted to say how incredible God was, they always connected it to his creation. In other words, they would look up at the stars and they didn't call him Yahweh, but they called him the Father of Lights. Now, why would they say that? Do you realize how many stars there are in our solar system? Billions and billions and billions of stars. We have a sun that burns at 19,000 degrees Fahrenheit. There are some stars, even in our solar system, that burn at 250,000 degrees Fahrenheit. You know who made those? God. Look at your hand. Do you realize how incredible this thing is? This thing right here, my dog doesn't have one of these. It's phenomenal what this thing can do, this little appendage. You see these things? Amazing. Whenever they would connect to the goodness of God, they always wanted us to know that they would look up into the stars and they would say, can God be anything but good? He rains down from us this father of lights all the time, but then he says, look at, look at the very end of it. He says, but the problem is, is that we tend to think of God as somebody who is there, there is variation or shifting shadow. Now, what does he mean by that? One of the things that they would do, this whole shifting shadow, can you turn off the lights for me? Is at the time, this was the light that they had. We live in a culture that we just flip on a switch and bam, we've got light. Now, if you look at it real carefully my hand will kind of, it'll kind of flicker up and down because the light gets, goes back and forth like that. And so in other words, when they talked about a shifting shadow or variation, they meant the light that's put out by a little tiny, in their case, oil lamp, but in our case, a candle. Go ahead and turn the lights back on. James is going to say to us something very, very clear. Your problem is you and your problem is your view of God. You're treating God like he's a candle. See, one of the best things that you and I can do is to increase our view of God. If this is all your view is, we're in trouble. Can you help me, Jerry? I didn't make this, as you know. So if you're going to send bad emails, send them to Francis. Come here. Don't lust, okay? No, you're going to have to keep it on. Hold on to the hat. Now, one of the things that we do is, is that when our view is this of God... How well do we see the things around us? Very well. In other words, when I have a small view of God, I can more clearly see these things that take me away. In other words, when, when my view of God is this big, not only when temptations come, but when trials come, all I can see is my trial. So in other words, my goal is in life is to get this view that James is talking about, which is to increase my view of God. Now, we do that, and as we study Scripture, pretty soon, where it's no longer this, but now all of a sudden we get more of a light like this. Now, do you still see, see stuff around you? You still see these things? Yeah. Okay, yeah. So in other words, then we have to increase our view of God. <laughs> so, we increase it. 
Maglite. And so now he's, he's kind of looking at me like this. In other words, do you still see these things? Yeah. Okay, but is it harder? Yeah. Okay, okay. Good. Just keep going with me. If at any point you don't, it, just help me, all right? <clears throat> now, can you do me a favor? See this black switch? Can you just crank it all the way on for me? Now, if our view of God really grows, just crank, black one, yeah, crank it all the way. There we go. We're friends, right? You got a good insurance policy? Okay. Now, you want to close your eyes. Now, yeah. Now, all of a sudden, when God becomes this big, right? What happens to my problems? They go away. Thank you, man, very much. You can just put it down there. Now, you can go and shut it off. Our biggest problem is us and our view of God. See, this tends to be our view of God. When we think He's good, we think this. We think shifting shadow. And God says, no, I created the sun. I mean, if I could, I wish I could bring the sun in here and go, you want to see how good He is? We'd all be blinded. He says, I'm good. I'm good in salvation, or good in creation, but then He doesn't even stop there. Look at verse 18. He says, not only am I good in, in creation... But I'm also good in salvation. In the exercise of his will, because he wanted to, not because we chose to, he brought us forth by the word of truth. Now this is a key thing. See, go with me to John 3.3 3 real quick. John 3.3. 3. Our problem is not external. See, God is so good, even though He's given us the stars and He's given us creation, which is enough to tell us that He's there, that's just enough to condemn us, but He knows our problem isn't external. He knows our problem is internal. And so when Nicodemus comes to Him and says, what must I do to be saved? He said, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. You've got to be born again. See, I could pick this light up and I could shove it into the face all I wanted to of an unbeliever and they're not going to see God. Why? Because you must be born again. What's he talking about there? In Ephesians 2.1 it says, You are dead in your trespasses and sins. See, whenever people talk about their salvation, a lot of times they'll say, Oh, I was about ready to go under and I'm, I'm a, God reached out His hand and saves me at the last second. No, He didn't. You were at the bottom of the ocean, dead. God went down there and rescued you from the bottom of the ocean and He bore you again. In other words, He brought you to life. Why? Because He wanted to. Did you do anything good? No. See, everything I do is in verses 14 and 15, which says Todd has temptation, which then he has lust, and when that lust gets after it, it conceives inside him. When it conceives inside him, it becomes death. That's 14 and 15. In verse 18, God is the exact opposite. When he sees me, he he bears me again, and he bears me again into new life. In 2 Corinthians 5, it says we are a new creation. We're different. Behold, the old things have passed, and behold, new things have come. 
In other words, when God comes into my life, he knows that I can't see creation. In other words, he's got to open my eyes. I don't know how many times I've said to people, how in the world can you look at the stars and the sun? How can you look at this incredible creation? I mean, when I hold these little foster babies, I get into my home, and they're so tiny and fragile, and then they turn into big oafs like me. I mean, maybe there is, I don't know. But there's this thing where it's like, sheesh. And you say this just happened by chance? There's no way. But the greatest miracle in the world has nothing to do with those stars. God wants us to understand that the greatest miracle that he pulls off is when we believe this message of the cross of Jesus Christ and we go from dead to life. All of us in here that know Jesus Christ are walking miracles. Miracles. Because I would never see God unless he first comes and he opens my eyes. That's the point of the Bible. I can't. I'm dead. I have to have him open my eyes and that is how I am born again. And look what he says down here. He says, out of the exercise wheel, he brought us forth by the word of what? Truth, this, which contains the message of God, the gospel. See, creation, there's enough to condemn us. This book is what contains the message that saves us. See, a lot of times people try to use, you know, look at creation. No, creation just says you're a sinner going to hell. That's all it says. There's a God and you're, whole, you're held accountable. This book comes in with this amazing message and says, but God loves you. God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whosoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. See, the book of James oftentimes we put off as the book of works, but actually this incredible passage of verse 18 says, no, Your problem isn't external. The problem is God needs to come inside of you and you need to be born again because unless you're born again, nothing good is going to come out of you. Go with me to 1 John. Let me show you what I mean by that. 1 John. Look at verse chapter 3 and verse 9. See, everybody always wants to talk about sin, but no one who is born of God practices sin at all. Uh, Look with me at uh, 2.29. Look at this. If you know that he is right, or he's righteous, you know that everyone also who practices righteousness is born of him. Look at chapter 4, verse 7. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. Meaning the only people that can love, the only people that can do good things, are those people that are born of God. Literally, you can't do anything good on yourself. In John 15, it says, apart from me, you can do what? Nothing at all. And the passage that I love out of John 4, 4, 1 John 4, 4, that's so good, look at this. You are from God, little children, and you have overcome them. Because greater is he who is in you, internal, than he who is in the world, external. See, while Satan is crouching around the door wanting to totally now devour you, it's talked about in First Seven or in, in uh, First Peter four. Greater is He who is in you, internal, than He who is in the world. Go back to James, one. And He doesn't stop there. Look at this. He brought us forth for a purpose. In your Bible, you might have that after the word of truth. You might have so that, depending on what you have in your Bible. Literally, it means he brought us forth by the word of truth for a purpose. There's a purpose that we might be, as it were, the first fruits among his creatures. Now, that passage, all it means is this. He saved us to put us on display. Now, think about that. He saved us 
so that people might see us. He saved us so that our good works might go out and people will glorify our fathers in heaven. He saved us, Ephesians 2.10, because this whole idea is we are His workmanship, His, His masterpiece created in Christ Jesus for good works. Now, what do we mean by that? Well, you come back up again. And can you turn on this light? When after, wait till we'll burn the carpet. So you have to wait till he picks it up. Okay. Now, go ahead and pick up that light. This one. Oh, not that one. No, oh, I'm just kidding. Go ahead. Now, go ahead and stand over there. And I'm going to be pointed at me. Cool, yeah, crank her up. Now, not yet. Now, one of the things that the problem is with most people is, is that they think, oh, cool, God's created me for a purpose. He's created me to change me, to make me different. And so God comes in and in verses 2 in James 1, 2 through 12, he comes in and he puts me through trials and he cleans me and he brings, and temptations come my way, but I resist them and I stay clean. And as I stay clean, God begins to make me into something unique. Now go ahead and shine it at this. As he begins to change me, what reflects? Is it me? No, it's my view of God. In other words, as my view of God increases, I begin to display his goodness all around to him. Am I displaying myself? No, I'm displaying God. Now, our problem is, and you can go ahead and shut it off. Thanks, man. Our problem is this. If that is our view of God, we're good. If this is our view of God, that's all we reflect. Our view of God is so important. See, if this is, if this is all we believe in, This is all we're going to reflect. The best thing that you can do, the reason that I sit down and I open up my Bible in the morning, I don't just do it because a verse a day keeps the devil away. I don't just do it because I want to get smarter. Literally, I've started opening up my Bible just saying, God, number one, I know you're going to bring things at me today that are trials that I don't know how I'm going to deal with. God, I'm a sinner. You know deep within my heart I'm a wretched man and there's going to be temptation everywhere that I'm going to want to grab because I believe that stuff is better than you. God, my flesh tells me that. So God, as I open up this word today, show me how big that you are. Because I've got a big day today. Now, if this is all we have is our view of God, we're in trouble. But, I don't even think that displays everything. Now, I'm going to use you again, alright? Now, what I want you to do, and can you do me a favor? See those little knobs up there? Either one of you. Just crank them all the way on. Now, crank them. Both of them. Just turn them all the way up. Now, see, and can you go and turn off the lights for me? Can you imagine if every day I really believed this? I don't want to, I don't want to make you guys feel like I'm leaving you out because somehow these got turned. Think about that. I wouldn't see the nasty stuff around me. But our problem is, you can go ahead and shut them off now. Our problem is, this is it. We go out and we go, God, you're this big. Now, the one thing I appreciate about going to Cornerstone is I believe we do the best we can to present a God that's gigantic. I know the one thing I've appreciated of my friendship with Francis, my friendship with all the other pastoral staff, is that our goal is to present to you a God that's gigantic. But just because we present a big God doesn't mean that everyone lives a big God. What I'm going to do is in the Bible, anytime they would talk about God, 
especially in the book of Psalms, they would write after it this Hebrew word, Selah, which meant stop and think about it. Now, what we could do is we could get out of here and I could get you all riled up and we'd be like, Ooh, God is awesome! You know, and we could go crazy. I don't want to do that this morning. What I'd rather do is just, shh, be quiet. God says, be still and know that I'm what? God. I'm going to have Jim come up and he's going to sing the song that we sang last. What you could do for me is this. I'm not, we're not going to do baptisms. If you want to get baptized, we'll baptize you at the beginning of the next service. If you want to do communion here coming up, you can come do communion. We're going to pass the offering and so you can totally give to the Lord. Don't sing the song, please. Just say la. Stop and think. And what I'm going to ask you to think about is what is your view of God? Not what do you wish your view of God is. What is your view of God? Because I believe if you just your view of God, we wouldn't have so many counseling problems. We wouldn't have God's church. We wouldn't have a guy. You know what? I'm ticked off this morning, by the way. I'm glad God's good. I'm being angry, but I'm not going to sin. How dare that man in Colorado Springs run the name of Jesus Christ through the mud? You know why he did? That's his view of God. See, this matters. This matters in what we say to the world. You sitting here today, your view of God matters to me. And so that's why I'm saying we're just gonna we're gonna sing. And he's gonna sing, I mean, and I just want everybody to think, God, tell me your view. Tell me what my view of you is. Now help me this week to go home and open my eyes to how big you are. Let's pray. Jesus, we love you. I'm blown away that in your grace you decided to create us, that you made this amazing world to display your glory. And then you didn't stop there. You knew that our problem wasn't external, but you knew our problem was internal, so you saved us. God, we're sitting here today proclaiming to you that we understand that there are going to be trials in our life this week. We understand that there will be temptations that will come along. And the thing that we'd ask, God, is please increase our view of you. Help us to open our eyes to how huge you are and how amazing you are. That God, the times that we want to fight, that we would understand that it's better to shut our mouth because you are good and our words are going to be death. God, when we want to do dumb things to our kids or dumb things to our parents, when we want to be an idiot in any type of a way, God, help us to see you and your magnificence and your hugeness. God, if bad things come along at us that we can't control, Help us to understand. Help us to see how large you are. In your precious name we pray. Amen.